0: You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Y'all okay tonight? This is test week, right? How many of y'all test this week? (laughs) It's test week, clearly. Everybody raised their hand. Well, we get to talk about sex tonight, so it's all good. <laughs> so I was in a fraternity in college and, uh, crazy, crazy fraternity. Now there's a whole nother story as far as how I ended up in this fraternity, but, um, I, I just real short story here. So I was in this frat and, and I guess part of the crazy story, how I ended up in it is through a series of events. God really put it on my heart to join this fraternity and to use it. True story here. Uh, as, as a ministry opportunity for me. And there's more to it than that. But so this fraternity, it was crazy. And, and so I would go, you know, our our frat would have all these parties and stuff. Uh, And, and so for me, you know, what I would do, especially when I was uh, kind of still pledged status in the fraternity, like you had to go to the parties. And then even after that, it was like, look, you're supposed to go support your fraternity at the parties. And so I, I, what I would do is I would go to the first, like 30, 45 minutes of the party when like nobody's even there yet, really. And I would leave before it got crazy. And so there was one night where our, our frat was having a party. It was a mixer with a different sorority uh, in town uh, from another school that was in town. And, uh, and it was one of these parties where you dress up and stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, like costumes dress up, not like nice dress up, costume dress up. And, uh, and so I had a date that night with my girlfriend. And so I was like, hey, I, have to, I, I need to go to this party first, and then I'll come pick you up afterwards. And she was like, yeah, that's totally cool. And so I, I go to this party, and I get there, and... Um, my frat brothers, they knew that I would leave early if they didn't do something about it. And so uh, they had actually gotten some handcuffs. And uh, there was a girl at this party uh, who I didn't know, still don't know who she was, uh, but dressed up as a police officer, which you can picture that. And, and uh, so they took handcuffs and handcuffed me to this girl uh, who I did not know. And these were real handcuffs, uh, not like the little trick ones. And so I'm now handcuffed to this girl. And uh, and so I I'm like guys I gotta go like my it's it's almost been an hour it's past time for me to go pick up my girlfriend I'm like I'm gonna be late to go get my girlfriend and this right here is not gonna explain well over the phone and so uh, they're like sorry bro don't know where the key is and I'm like whatever and so I, we're, I remember this is basically my memory of this I'm sitting there on the porch with this girl like there's these steps to the porch I'm sitting there I can't even look at her because. She just wasn't dressed right, and so I'm like kind of sitting here like this, and uh, we're kind of having this conversation, but I'm over here to the side like this. I just didn't want to stumble by looking over this way, and, and so then my girlfriend calls, and I'm like, oh no, it's like I'm late to go get her, and she's like, hey, where are you? And I was like, well... <laughs> uh, Funny story. Um, I'm a little bit tied up. Can, I, uh, can I'm i going to be a little bit late. Can I come get you in a little bit? And she's like, yeah, that's fine. Where, where are you? What, what do you mean you're tied up? And I was like, well, uh, actually, I'm handcuffed to another girl right now. And anyways, it didn't go very well. But uh, I ended up being handcuffed to this girl for a, a long time, and the story goes on from there. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about tonight, and, and I feel like this picture describes our generation so well. We are enslaved to lust, we are enslaved to sexual sin, we are enslaved to what we're going to call tonight bad sex. So many of, we're, so many of us, we're, we're handcuffed to it, and we don't have the key. We're, we're, it's controlling our life. It's, it's holding us back. And so really tonight and, and the next two weeks is about being set free from this enslaving bondage that many of us in this room... Many of you in this room are in. Tonight In the next two weeks, my, my hope is that, if, for lack of better, just imagery, that we would find the key so that we can be set free from what we're enslaved to. And so the, the, uh, the, the two questions that we're asking tonight and next week are, how do we have good sex and how do we recover from bad sex? Um, the other night I was, I was sitting in Cafe Brazil And, uh, sometimes it's real close to where I live. And so sometimes I'll, I'll go study there and and eat late at night when I, I know I need to get some studying done. And I'm, and I'm, I'm studying this text and, and, uh, you know, sometimes when I, when I know kind of the big idea of what we're studying here at overflow, I'll just Google it and just see what, you know, mainstream media is saying about the text. And so I knew tonight, we're calling tonight how to have good sex, not even thinking I Google how to have good sex in the middle of cafe Brazil and you know. All of a sudden, this stuff pops up on my screen, and I'm like, oh, crud, I'm in the middle of Cafe Brazil. What am I doing? And, and, uh, but in the two seconds that I had it on my screen, it was there long enough for me to, to make this observation. I mean, I saw the very first thing that came up was an article from Cosmo magazine. And then, like, the next four articles were these, you know, sketchy, risque magazines. And nothing on the front page Nothing on the front page in regard to how to have good sex, in any way hinted at any reference to scripture, any reference to the Bible. You know, before side note before we started this series, um, uh, this series called "How to Date, Mate, Procreate." I-, I googled that too, which uh, the first thing that came up there—don't google that, by the way—but the first thing that came up there was uh, how to breed goldfish. Uh, apparently, <laughs> apparently, there's 14 steps in how to breed goldfish. Um, now, I, I Googled this again yesterday, and here's why. Because I wanted to try to find that How to Breed Goldfish website. I Googled it. Guess what the first, uh, the two of the top four things were that came up? Our website and uh, our podcast on iTunes. When I Googled How to date, mate, Procreate, now, because of this series, they're two of the top four things that come up when I Google that. I'm, I'm just wondering, after tonight... Uh, <laughs> That's cool. If you want to talk to that, I, I thought it was like, well, that's kind of weird. Uh, so maybe tonight, after we talk about how do we have good sex, maybe tomorrow you Google that, and our website will come up. We'll see. But uh, you know, so I I Googled this the other night, and and I see on the on the front screen like nothing. You know, it, asking this question, how do we have good sex? Nothing refers back to scripture. It was all Cosmo magazine, or this magazine, or even NBC, ABC, Fox News, CNN had these different articles, and and it's so frustrating. Because here's the thing, the church should be leading the way in talking about this stuff. Sex finds its origins in this book. Love, marriage, weddings, relationships, all of that finds its origins in this book. And because we keep choosing as the church, as the people of God, to censor God, to censor what's in the Word when it comes to this subject, we have allowed culture to sneak in and rob... Sex, and marriage, and weddings of its originally intended God-given meanings. And so now, instead of looking to the creator of sex to teach us how to have good sex, the people around us, and even us in this room, we've, we've chosen to look to self-proclaimed experts like Cosmo, who know nothing about God's original plan and purpose for sex. That's who we're going to, to get our answers to questions how to have good sex. I was asked um, to preach. I, how many of you were here for the Bare Naked series a couple years ago? Bare Naked, uh, The Grizzly Truth About Love, Sex, and Other Stuff. It was an awesome series, um, if I don't say myself. Uh, but I, I got asked to, to, to take that series and to teach it to a, a private Christian school uh, not too far from here, junior high and high school students. So sixth grade all the way through 12th grade. They, they called me and said, hey, you know, we heard your bare naked series. We would like for you to come teach that to our students. This is like 800, 900 plus students. I was going to have the high school separately from the junior high, again, sixth grade to 12th grade, which that is a huge spectrum of people. And I said, Now listen, are you sure you want me to teach the bare naked series to this group of students? And they were like, Yeah, we're sure. So a few weeks go by, then two, two nights before I'm supposed to preach this series, uh, I get a phone call and suddenly I'm on like speaker phone with like four or five people and they're saying, hey, we're, we're kind of having some hesitation about this series. Maybe you should back down a little bit from it and which I hadn't even you know, preached any of it or anything. They hadn't heard any of it, I guess, but they're just getting nervous about it because I'm about to be talking about sex in front of sixth through twelfth graders and, uh, and, and they're like, maybe you shouldn't use words like this and use words like that. Maybe you should, should avoid these topics and these passages and I was like, look, do you want me to teach bare naked series or not? It's like, if I'm going to teach the Bare Naked series, I'm going to teach it. Like, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm not going to censor what the Bible says about love, sex, and these other things. So I can either teach it or I can teach something completely different, but I need to know what you want me to teach. And so they said, look, you know, they called me back and they're like, we want you to teach it, teach it how it is. And so I go and I teach. And there was, um, there was one day I'm teaching the high school students. I would teach them first, then the junior high kids. And after teaching the high school students, and, and just so you know, like I'm working this whole time with their pastor and he's approving it all. He, he was good with everything I was doing and saying. But after teaching the high school students one morning, this, this, this mother came up to me and she worked at the school and she apparently had a kid. Um, she had a kid in the junior high there and she pulls me off to the side and she's got this face of terror and she's like, hey, you're not about to teach that to the junior high kids, are you? And I was like, well, my plan is to, yes. And she goes... Well, I I really hope that that you don't say a lot of that stuff because a lot of the stuff that you said, like, like, and and I hadn't said hardly anything, by the way. Okay. Basic stuff. And, and she goes, a lot of that stuff you said, like my eighth grade boy, we haven't even talked about that stuff with him. And I, and and I said, ma'am, with all due respect, if you have not talked about this stuff with your eighth grade boy yet, you're way behind. Because the reality is he's already talking about it and a whole lot more with his friends. The reality is, he's getting answers to the questions that he's had for a while now from other sources outside of you, his his Bible-believing parents, hopefully, outside of the church, outside of Scripture. And here's the thing, whether you grew up in church or not, you probably have one of two views of what the Bible says about sex. Either you think the Bible treats sex like a myth, like you think the Bible doesn't talk about sex, you think the Bible acts like sex does not exist at all, so we'll call this uh, uh, sex is a myth. Or others of you, you think the Bible talks about sex or treats uh, sex, sex like a monster. You think, yeah, the Bible talks about sex, but the only stuff that it says about sex is, is, that, it's, uh, is that it's scary, it's frightening, it's gross, it's disgusting, and it'll eat you alive, it'll kill you. So chances are, whether you grew up in the church or not, you think that the Bible either talks about sex as if it's a myth, so it doesn't really talk about sex, or you think that the Bible talks about sex as if it's a monster. But both of these views are completely wrong, because the Bible talks a lot about sex, far from treating it like a myth. I mean, page one of your Bible, past the table of contents and all that stuff, page one of like the actual meaty stuff, Genesis chapter one, like page one, chapter one, book one of the Bible... Talks about sex. It introduces to us the whole God given concept of sex. But not only does it just talk about it, the Bible talks about how to have good sex. Far from treating sex like a monster. I mean, turn with me to Song of Solomon chapter seven, real quick. Some of y'all are like, "Yes, Song of Solomon." <laughs> We're only going to be there for a minute. I promise. Song of Solomon chapter seven, verse uh, verse verse one. Listen to this. This is crazy. So he says, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter? I feel like I need to get my deep voice on for this. Okay, I I, got to start over because I can't jump to that next line. That's just will be weird. So how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter? Really, y'all still trying to get there to Song of Solomon? I hear all these pages still flipping. (laughs) I want to wait for you to get there. I want you to see this with your own eyeballs. Song of Solomon, it's, it's sort of in the middle of the Bible. Come on, help your neighbor out. <laughs> Most of you on your phone, just like type Song of Solomon. It's not that hard. <laughs> chapter 7, verse 1, Song of Solomon. Goodness. Okay, whether you're there or not, we got, we got to move. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. Verse 1, listen, it says how beautiful. He says, he's talking to the woman that he loves. And he says this, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels. (laughs) You front section people, man. Spray y'all with a hose, cold water. Cool you off. Your rounded, thigh, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. <laughs> your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath, whatever. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon. Now, I don't know how that is a compliment, but (laughs) I guess it was. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel. Carmel? Sorry, not Carmel. Carmel. It's a place. Your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. So, I mean, not only is he describing his woman that he loves, but he started from the bottom And not Drake, not Drake. I heard that as it was coming out of my mouth. He starts from... This is not going to be a good night. But you can see what he does. He slowly starts at the bottom and he works his way up. He's not holding anything back. And they didn't censor this out of Scripture, did they? So you read a little further. In verse 9, after it says she, it kind of starts a new section. And now she's talking back. She says, It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved. Let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded. Whether the great blossom, blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you my love. Do you know what they're talking about? They're talking about sex, but they're talking about sex outside. That's what they're talking about. And the Bible does not censor any of that. You go to Proverbs chapter 5. Flip with me to, to, to Proverbs. Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 5. Verse 18, it's a couple books to the left. In a much more concise way, Solomon, who's writing this, says here, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated or get lost in or get drunk always in horror love. Like Beyonce and Jay-Z got nothing on this drunken love. So let's start here. If you want to have good sex, put down the Cosmo and pick up your Bible. Get to know the creator of sex. Get to know the purpose of sex. I don't think I really have to explain myself when I say that our generation is plagued with bad sex. I mean, you just look at the... I don't have to give you the statistics on pornography. Pornography is a raging epidemic. And it's not just a raging epidemic out there. Pornography is a raging epidemic in this room. And this raging epidemic of pornography is feeding another epidemic of sex trafficking. That is a raging epidemic that if you are part of the raging epidemic of pornography, you are helping fuel and fund the sex traffic industry. Domestic violence, our, our, our society is littered with domestic violence. It's become commonplace for us. Unwanted pregnancies, abortions, STDs, STIs, all sorts of sexual confusion. And, and, and way too many broken hearts. Way too many guilt-ridden souls. And so the next two weeks is simply about how do we have good sex, and then if we've had bad sex, if we've instigated bad sex, if we've been a victim of bad sex, how do we recover from that? So so normally, I I have my text going into the week, so like Wednesday, I already know what I'm preaching on, and so I went into this week planning to to teach in this text over here. Sunday, I felt like God was just saying, no, somewhere else, like you need to be somewhere else, and so picked up Proverbs chapter 5, which is where we're going to hang out tonight. And, and I say that to you for two reasons. One is, um, I, I, I'm, 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 this is one of those moments where you kind of come up here trusting that the Lord's going to use what you say even though you don't feel like you're ready to preach it. Because as opposed to having seven days, I've got like, I had like two, three days. Um, but the other reason I say that is, is so we're going to study Proverbs 5. And, and instead of me like preaching a sermon to you, I, I, I like to do this anyways. I want us to study this text together. Like I want us to pick it apart. We're going to go through the whole chapter and I want us to pick it apart together and, and as, we, as application comes, we'll deal with it. But I really think the, re, the result of tonight will be us having a better understanding of how to have good sex and really what, what sex was meant to be in the first place. So Proverbs chapter five, beginning in verse one. Uh, this, is what, uh, this is what Bree read earlier. He starts off and he says, my son, now stop right there. He says the word my. Pronouns are so important. I'm sorry, that's not a, that is a pronoun. Pronouns are important. And, and, and they're important because you've got to identify who it's referring to. So in this case, when this writer says my, who's my referring to? Who wrote this? Do you know? Go, go to chapter 1, verse 1. Flip to chapter 1, verse 1, real quick. Who wrote it? It says the Proverbs of Solomon son of David, king of Israel. So Solomon wrote this. This is important. I'm not the one talking to you tonight. I'm not giving you advice. Solomon is the one talking and essentially God is speaking through Solomon to us tonight. And who was Solomon? Do you know? I mean, it says here, Solomon was the king of Israel, son of David. So he's like the third king of Israel. um, and, And he was the last king before the kingdom split into two. There was a huge mess after his leadership. And there's a lot more story to Solomon than this, but what you need to know is he was probably probably wealthier than any other man in human history. He probably had more sex than any other man in human history. He probably had more power than any other man in human history. That being said... You look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 8, which is one book over, and I'm going to flip there real quick. So he's listing all of these things that he has found in his life to be vain. Even though he had all of this stuff, he says in verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. So he says, I was super rich, super powerful. Then he says, I got singers, both men and women. And then he says, I had many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. he said, I had a lot of sex. And as you read on, he goes on to say, I had all of this stuff, yet what I found is that all of it was vain. He says, I had all this stuff, yet I still found myself wanting. I still found this void in my life that had yet to be filled. And maybe this is where we should start. Maybe we should start with this, the reality that many of you, you're seeking to be fulfilled in things that can't fulfill you. Many of you, you're seeking to be fulfilled in sex or sexual things. And, and this guy had more sex than any of you will ever have, times a lot. And you're hearing what he's saying. He's saying, I still found myself wanting. There's still got to be more. I pray that the Lord convicts your heart as that is being spoken to you tonight. And I hope, I hope if that's you, that you're pursuing, you're pursuing satisfaction, fulfillment, life in this stuff. I hope you see that you will not find it there. Reminds me of when Jesus, he shows up after his resurrection, and he's walking along the guys on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus. And he says, why do you seek the living among the dead? See, many of you, you're seeking life where there is no life to be found. And my prayer is that you would realize that tonight and seek life in the only place that it can be found, and that is in Christ, in Jesus. So he says, my son, going back to Proverbs 5.1, he says, my son. Now think about this. He says, son. Now he's talking specifically here to his son, but the reality is uh, there's more for us to gather than just that. What he's saying to his son is, look, I'm bringing more to the table than you. He's saying, I'm mature. He's saying, you're not there yet. You need to hear this. If you want God to speak to you tonight, if you want God to speak to you ever for that matter, you have got to understand that he's bringing more to the table than you could ever bring. We have literally nothing to offer God that he doesn't already know or he doesn't already have. And a lot of times I feel like we approach God as if we've got something to tell him that he doesn't know. Like we come to him and we do all the talking. or We come to him and we're like, dude, why is this happening? Like he didn't already know it was happening. Or we give him our time or, our, or we give him a little bit of our money and we think, man, I just made a huge sacrifice. Dude, it was his already. He's the one who gave you that time. He's the one who gave you that that breath so you could give that energy and earn that money. He's the one who gave you that money. Jesus says, blessed be the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says that for a reason. If you want God to do something in your life, it starts with realizing how dead broke you really are. You are spiritually poor. You are emotionally poor. You are intellectually poor. You are poor. So so maybe this is where we start tonight. I mean, maybe the starting place is, hey, let's just stop and pray for a minute and ask God to forgive us for thinking that we have something to bring to the table in a conversation with him and an interaction with him and not realizing that he's the owner of it all. Maybe we start in saying, God, I I need to confess. I thought this whole time that I had all this stuff, that I was rich, that I was wealthy, that I brought something to the table. But the reality is I'm poor, broke. You gave me all this in the first place. I can't give you anything. Some of you, that's before you go any further, you just need to confess that to the Lord. And then he says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. So in other words, he says incline your ear. In other words, adjust your posture so you can hear better. Pay attention is what he's saying. You know, I don't know how you are when it comes to class. Um, I was not a good student at all in college. Um, and, And so like my first day of class, I went for the wall seats because I knew in the wall seats, I had a place to lean up against and sleep um, first class of, of a professor I'd had multiple times before. Uh, and I'm sitting up against the wall first day of class and I'm like passed out before he even hardly starts the lecture. And and here's the thing. I was really good at sleeping in class. Um, in the sense that, you know, you, there's all kinds of different ways you can sleep and try to hide it from the professor, you know, like, Oh, I'm, I'm really focused studying right now, but I'm asleep or, uh, you know, Hmm. Or, uh, you know, not just this like passed out (laughs) position, but I was good at that. The problem is I, I twitch early on when I'm falling asleep. And so first day of class, this one class, I have my, uh, this notebook here, which is first day of class is like the only day of class. I bring a notebook to class, but I have my hand on the notebook and I'm sleeping like this and I twitch and I take the notebook and just go wham. And it literally just goes boom, like in the face of the person sitting next to me. And my professor, he doesn't even say anything. He just looks up and he goes and looks back down. Cause he knew, he knew that that was going to be the whole year pretty much. But he says, incline your ear. This is a positional thing. He's saying, sit up, scoot forward. My coach, and, and when I played basketball, he'd say, hey, when you're on the bench, I want you sitting on the edge of your chair, leaning forward. That is helping you engage in the game. Sit up, scoot forward, posture yourself so that you can hear, so you can reflect, so that you can take notes. Unpretzel yourself for like 30 minutes from your girlfriend or boyfriend. Some of you come in here and you're all like wrapped up in each other, like for 30 minutes, just... Let there be some space and breathing room and and listen, he's saying. Job 38.3, God says to Job, brace yourself like a man. You know, sometimes we're unable to receive the truth because we don't brace ourselves for the truth. You know, it's like somebody's taking off, running full speed for you about to tackle. you. You don't just stand there like, Waiting for him to do it, do you? No, what do you do? You brace yourself. You get your, sho- your, your, your feet about shoulder width apart, one foot slightly in front of the other. You, you get your balance, and then you get ready to put some force back into it. And that's what he's saying to Job. Brace yourself like a man, because I'm about to speak to you. That's what he says. And I believe when Solomon says this, incline your ear, he's getting to the same point. Brace yourself, position yourself to where you are ready to hear God speak. This is a habit you should make of every time you come to worship, every time you step into a a moment either alone with God or corporately with other people to study his word, brace yourself, prepare your heart for him to speak. And then he says, verse two, that you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge. How do you protect something that you care about? I mean, think about your car. My car, black Honda, his name's Jack Bauer. Uh, When we drive at night with our lights off, that's stealth mode. Uh, Also illegal mode, but whatever, it's stealth mode. But I like Jack Bauer. And Jack Bauer got beat up by the hailstorms this year, but it's cool. I, it got totaled, but I'm keeping the car anyways and the money. Um, but, like, when you love something, you protect it. You guard it. You keep it, just like he's saying here. And what do you do? Like, with the car, Well, one, you keep it clean, which if that's the litmus test, then I don't love my car, but I do love my car. You keep it clean. Um, you know, and, and you keep it clean. You, you, uh, you lock it so people can't just come in and take it. Uh, and then you hide it when there's bad weather or, or there's other threats to it. You hide it. How do you keep though? How do you guard like a message? He's giving a message. He says, "Guard this message." He says, "Guard my wisdom. Keep my truth." How do you do that with something that's not physical? I mean, I mean, one you may just take notes, you know, because um, in the same way you keep your car clean, you have to you got to keep the message clean. You got to keep it pure. You don't want it to get tainted or discombobulated or confused or falsified. But not only do you, you know, take notes or do something to help you remember it, but you have to preserve it. And the way you preserve it is, look, if, if, if Aramis, if you're the only guy that knows the gospel on planet Earth, and there's other people on planet Earth, and your goal is to guard that message, guard that truth, preserve it, you have to think about the fact that one day you're going to die. And when you die, if you're the only one who has that message, that message dies with you. And so, you've not done a good job of preserving that message. So, part of the way you preserve wisdom and preserve a message is you what? You pass it on, you share it, you spread it around. So, how many of you are doing that? Little side note here. How many of you, you take this and you don't do anything with it? I mean, we come in here every week, and let me tell you something I'm wasting my time, you're wasting your time. If all you do is you take this, you swallow it, and you—that's you, that's the last time anybody sees it. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you're good at. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian or or not. And I know some people in here aren't believers. Um, but your responsibility when you receive God's word is to remember it, keep it pure, but then to preserve it by spreading it around. How many of you are mentoring somebody else in the truth of God's word? How many of you are making disciples? Jesus says, Make disciples. Listen, you're not a disciple of him if you're not making disciples of him. So he says, Keep it and preserve it. And then he goes on, verse 3. He says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. So I guess Solomon was a lips guy. That was the first thing he noticed. That was the most important thing to him. Important thing to him. So it says, "For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey." The actual Hebrew translation of that is, "Dang! Did you see the lips on that girl? <laughs> they drip honey and are smoother than oil." I'm not going to read what I wrote on there. It's too uh, stupid. But uh, I mean, somebody needs to throw some cold water on Solomon and cool him off. You know, guys, guys, uh, guys are sometimes way too much all about body parts. My dad says that he married my mom for her legs, uh, which he's joking, of course. He married her for money too, but. <laughs> but you can insert there in place of lips, whatever suits you, lips, legs, flowing hair, eyeballs, etc. Girls, you're like, well, I'll insert the heart because that's the only thing that I really care about. <laughs> that is a lie. We know you lust too. The point is this, though. He says, listen, he says, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. The point is sexual temptation is so real. Temptation is so real. It's so tempting, even seemingly unbearable at times. Do you realize that that the part of your brain that controls your food and your water appetites is the same part that controls your appetite for sex? And here's what's, uh, what's, what's interesting. Well, I guess that being said, um, you have strong cravings for sex. Same kind of strong cravings that you have for food or for water. I'm really hungry right now, by the way. I can't wait to go out there and eat later. <laughs> but, but here's the only difference. If you don't have food or water, eventually you'll die. But that's not true of sex. You might feel like you're going to die. And your brain often makes you think that you're going to die. But you will not die if you don't have sex. Now, girls, here's what you need to hear me say in regards to this. Some of you are dating guys or have dated guys. And here's a conversation that you've had as you've been together, probably in a situation you should have been in in the first place, he said something to the effect of, babe, like he's asking you, he's co- trying to convince you to do sexual things that either you don't wanna do or you don't think you should do or, or whatever you're thinking, maybe you wanna do them, I don't know. But he says something like, listen, babe, I can't bear it. Like it hurts or I'm gonna die or whatever. He may be sounding so sincere too, but it is a scientific fact that he will survive. (laughs) So for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Um, You know, there's something to be said about the fact that he calls this a forbidden woman. There's something to be said about the fact that there are people, men and women, girls, there there are men who are off limits to you, forbidden to you. Guys, there are women who are off-limits to you, forbidden to you. That's what that word means, off-limits, unauthorized. The Bible is clear that the only relationship in which sexual relations are prohibited is in the marriage relationship. Great theologian I heard say this one time, no, bing, bing before the ring, ring. It's very true. (laughs) Genesis Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 to 25 says this, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, we study this more in depth in the Bare Naked series, but but here's what you can see in this. Though the Bible continues to establish this pattern throughout, what it shows us right from the start is one man plus one woman, then marriage, then sex. And the order is very clearly laid out in the second chapter of the entire Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, Paul writes. He actually quotes Genesis 2. He says, He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Our view, or the way that we view marriage, is a direct reflection of our understanding of the gospel. The way that you view sex is a direct reflection of your understanding of what the Bible is all about. Tim Keller, a pastor, he says, the gospel helps us to understand marriage and marriage helps us to understand the gospel. This is the secret, that the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another, that when God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. Gerald Highstand, he's an author, he said this, the greatest significance of sex is not what it accomplishes on an earthly plane, but what it images or or what it symbolizes on a divine plane. Sex, he says, is not an end in itself. It's a type or it's a symbol of something higher pointing to the deeper reality of the gospel. The physical oneness established through sex foreshadows the spiritual oneness that will exist and which already exists between Christ and His church at the wedding supper of the Lamb. A lot of people in culture today are saying, why do we even need marriage? Like, what's the point of marriage? We don't need it. And listen, if that's you, then you clearly don't understand the gospel. If Satan can get you to believe the lie that marriage is unessential to you having sex with another woman or another man, somebody of the opposite sex, or, or if, if Satan can get you to believe the lie that marriage is unessential to you being united with a man or a woman, then he can get you to believe the lie that Jesus is unessential to you being united with God. The Bible's very clear. The only way to be united with God is by first being wed to Jesus Christ. The Bible uses the image of the wedding all the time in talking about how we come into a relationship with God. And the only way to be united with a woman or ladies united with a man is to first be wed to that person. A wedding is is, is only symbolic of a greater wedding. And so he says, verse four, but in Hebrew, that means pump your brakes, Solomon. In the end, She's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. You know, I was thinking, what is wormwood? Uh, And I started to research it, and I found the answer. But honestly, it doesn't even matter. You can read that and know what it's saying. And and the reality is, many of you, even without necessarily knowing what wormwood is, when he says she's bitter as wormwood, or he's bitter as wormwood, sharper than a two-edged sword, you know exactly what that is. I don't have to explain it. You've tasted it. Many of you have tasted it. Many of you tasted it last night. Many of you tasted it this morning. You know the bitterness of sexual sin. You know the bitterness of bad sex all too well. It's as sharp as a two-edged sword. It's painful. It's destructive. It's not satisfying. The guilt and the shame that follows sex with the forbidden or the off-limits, it feels like being stabbed in the heart. It's costly. And so he goes on, he says, verse 5 her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander, and she does not know it. Sheol is basically another word for grave. Reality is there's a whole lot more at stake here than just physical and emotional pain. Bad sex has much deeper consequences. Not only does it harm your future sex life, it's destructive to your soul. And not only is it destructive to your soul, it's dest- <clears throat> destructive to the greatest picture of the gospel that God has given to us. Like The more you study scripture and the more you look for answers to you know, how to have good sex or what does the Bible say about sex, what you realize is that marriage and sex within the context of marriage really is the most perfect picture or symbol or example of the gospel that God's given to us. And knowing that to be the case, it it leads to a very important realization. Because marriage is the most clear and perfect picture that God's given to help us understand the gospel, doesn't it make sense that Satan's going to do whatever he can to try and destroy that? If he can destroy marriages, if he can destroy even our thought that we even need to get married, then he is effectively destroying the most clear and perfect picture that God has given us of the gospel for all those visible learners out there, visual learners out there. It's like baptism. You know, we baptize people and we do that. God tells us to do that because it's symbolic of the gospel. It's a visible picture of the gospel. We take communion. We do the wedding ceremony. All those things are symbols of something much bigger. Sex and marriage is the same way. Proverbs 5, 7, he says, and now sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. You know, if you look over at uh, chapter 6, verse 27, it says, Can a man, and really can a woman, can a man or woman carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Obvious answer is no, of course not. So many of us in this room are playing with fire. Over 30 times in the New Testament, uh, it uses the phrase sexual morality, and most of the time, it uses the phrase sexual morality. It's saying flee from it, but for some reason, we feel like we, we we need to reason with that phrase, saying, "Well, well, I mean, really, what is sexual morality? I mean, as long as we're not having sexual intercourse, I mean, that's not really sexual morality, is it? Or or oral sex isn't real sex, so that's not sexual immorality." or masturbation or, or, or whatever, looking at pornography, that's not I'm not having sex. So that's not sexual immorality. I mean, I, I, I heard this illustration one time. Um, you know, let's say that your, your mom, you're in the kitchen and you see this big old cake on the counter and your mom says, Hey, don't eat the cake. It's for a party later. Like, cool, ma. She leaves and you reach over and you, you take a piece of the cake and, and, uh, you stick it in your mouth and you chew it, but then you spit it back out and put it on the plate. And then you take another bite and you chew it and spit it back out, put it on the plate. And I thought about actually getting a cake here tonight and doing this, but I was like, no, that'd be weird and gross. But then you take another bite, chew it up, spit it out, put it back on the plate. And your mom comes back in and goes, what's she going to say? Ah, oh, that's cool. What's she going to say? What is wrong with you? Bam! You know, or bam, you know, whatever your mom is like, you know, if she's a ninja, then she's going to kick you probably in the face. But she's going to be like, what the heck are you doing?" And, and and it would be like you saying, well, mom, you know, to, you know listen, we're going to get technical here. I didn't eat the cake, okay? I just chewed it and then I spit it out. I didn't, I didn't swallow the cake. And to, and to technically eat the cake is to chew it and then, and then swallow it and then digest it. That's eating the cake. And she's going to be like, dude, you're crazy. Does she really have to describe or, or does she really have to go into that much detail to get you to understand what she really means about the cake? Does she? Like don't eat the cake means don't do what you just did. But but here's the thing, I think we do the same thing with God's commands. Not just commands about sex, but commands about everything. We treat God's commands that way. We try to reason them down. We try to find loopholes around them. And instead of making sure to stay far away from the line, many of you are seeing how close to it you can get. And to be honest with you, if that's your M.O., then you're going to fail. He says, run. Keep away from her. Do not go near the door of her house. I had a buddy in college, and, and a bunch of us had been hanging out, um, and, and we were leaving. He got in his car by himself. We were all going to go back to, to the dorm. We've been hanging out in another place, and he gets in the car. He got a text message from an old girlfriend who said, hey, I really miss you. It's about 11, 12 o'clock at night, and he had a choice in that moment. He was dating somebody else, by the way. He had a choice in that moment to, like, not even respond Actually, that's the moment where you roll down your window and you throw the phone out the window, you know. But he, he, he went to go see her. And it did not end well. He did the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches us to do. He was seeing how close to the line he could get. And if that's your MO, you're going to fail. You can't carry fire close to your chest and not be burned. And that's what many of us in this room are doing so verse 9, he goes on, he says, lest you, So keep away from her, don't go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of the foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. I think this is crazy what he says. Look, he says, look, if you go to the forbidden woman, the, the out." The, uh, the off-limits person, and you engage in sex or sexual stuff with her, however far is too far, like we clarified that the other night, we clarified that just now, like if you engage in sexual morality with her, with him, the result is not going to be good. And in many cases, you sacrifice so much, your honor, your reputation, he says, verse, verse nine, he says, and, and your years, give your years to the merciless. Think of how many, think of how many people have wrecked have, have, have totally wrecked and destroyed years of marriage or, or years, my mind goes, to pastors who've just wrecked years of ministry. But, but not just married people, not just pastors. Think of how many people have wrecked friendships, wrecked relationships, wrecked all that you've worked for. You've given away years of success and you've given away years of future success and future relationships all because of this one decision. Give away your strength, give away your labors, and and the types of people, it's just others, merciless, um, foreigners, strangers, people that don't even care about you. Verse 11, and at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. He says, at the end of your life, you're gonna look back and have these thoughts. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever think about the end of your life? Let me tell you something. If you don't think about the end of your life, you should think about the end of your life. If you don't think about the end of your life, you need to make a habit now of thinking about the end of your life. Just in the past three weeks, I've attended two funerals uh, and then one retirement party for one of the pastors in our church. And let me just tell you, uh, one of the funerals was J.D. Walker. He runs our sound, his his dad's funeral. Uh, Amazing, amazing funeral. Incredible to see that family and the legacy that that man has left. And incredible to see the people that came, who he had impacted. Incredible to see his legacy that he's left in this church. And then this Sunday, um, attended the retirement party of one of our pastors, Cliff Feeler, and this place was full for a retirement party. And this stage was full of people who had come from all over to just share about how much Cliff had impacted their lives. And I just wonder if you ever think about the end of your life. It says in that last verse, verse 14, I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. You know, I don't know exactly what the assembled congregation refers to here. I wonder if it's a funeral. I wonder if it's a retirement party. What are people going to say? Who's going to come? And then verse 15, it says, Drink water from your own cistern flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Now just look at the words used to describe this sex here. I mean, starting in verse 18, it says, blessed, rejoice, lovely, graceful, uh, let a breast fill you at all times, delight, intoxicated always, and love. Now compare that to the words that's used to describe the encounter with the off-limits person. I mean, look, bitter, sharper than a two-edged sword, death, and then in verse 14, utter Ruin. One is clearly better than the other. One is bad sex. One is good sex. And what he's saying here, drink water from your own sister. And if you want to have good sex, have sex with your wife or with your husband. And specifically, verse 18 says, and rejoice in the wife of your youth. In other words, your first wife, your only wife, your first husband, your only husband. And then he's not just talking about sexual intercourse. Which clarifies what he means when he's talking about what you can and can't do with the forbidden woman, because he says, "Let her breast fill you at, or, uh, let her breast fill uh shoot, I need to read this here. <laughs> I wrote it down wrong, let her breast fill you, fill you at all times with delight. he's not just talking about sexual intercourse, he's talking about everything that leads to sexual intercourse, and, and I love verse twenty in the way he ends the chapter because he he, he really brings this to a point where We've got to ask ourselves this question. Verse 20 says, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom or the breasts of an adulteress? It says, why? You know, you think about that. I, I, I honestly try to think through this. Like, what would be the potential answers? Like, what can you think of would be a good reason? I mean, think about this. You're in that moment. You're with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or just some random person that you planned on hooking up with. And, and think about that moment. And you're thinking, should I do this? What, are, like, what reasons can you come up with? And I, I honestly, I really only came up with two, two possible reasons you might be able to come up with. One is a, a quick, short-lived orgasm. Or two, for some of you, it's, it's simply a few moments where you feel wanted. It's a few moments where you feel loved. You feel like somebody actually cares about you. And the real question here is, is why should you not sleep with someone who's not your spouse? Why should you not engage in any sort of sexual activity with someone who's not your spouse? And he gives three reasons, verse 21, 22, and 23. He says, number one, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders, God ponders all of his paths. I mean, one, God sees everything, but here's kind of the big point here. It's destructive, It's destructive to your relationship with God. Assuming that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it's destructive to your relationship with God. I mean, James 4, James calls the people he's talking to adulterous people. And it's not adulterous because they were necessarily sleeping with people who weren't their husband or wife. He says, don't you know that to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God? Adultery is adultery secondarily because you're cheating on your spouse. Adultery is adultery primarily because you're cheating on God. Instead of pulling you closer to God, it pushes you away from God. Sex was given to us. It was designed to be a pointer to God, not a, not a substitute for God. And instead of pulling us closer to God, when we, when we sleep with the, the, the man or woman or we engage in sexual activities with the person that we shouldn't, it pushes us away from God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 through 8. This is the AWV, the Austin Wilder version. It, It basically says, look, when you ignore these commands of God, you are resisting or pushing away the same God who gives you the Holy Spirit. That's one of the greatest blessings of being a believer in Jesus, is you have the Holy Spirit, and you're pushing him out. So it's destructive. Verse 22, it's addicting. He says, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. That word held fast, I just noticed this right now know, we read that same word in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 to 25. It says the man and woman shall leave their mother, father, and then they shall, what, hold fast to each other? I remember this from the bare naked study. That word hold fast means to be glued together. And so what he's saying here is this, the iniquities, iniquities, the sins of the wicked ensnare him, and he is glued in the cords of sin, handcuffed and no key. Not only is it destructive to your relationship with God, it's addictive. Once you begin to walk down that road, it's hard to turn back. Once you've walked on that road, it's hard to stay off of it. Because it's so addictive. It's like being handcuffed to it, and you don't have the key. It's like being in bondage. Instead of being a slave to God, you become a slave to sex and your sexual urges. And then the third, it's evidence. And here's what I mean. Verse 23, he dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he's led astray. Going back to what we saw in verses uh, 5 and 6, look, a whole lot more is at stake here than just your physical health, your emotional health. This, this, this could be evidence that there's a much, much deeper, greater spiritual problem. It could be evidence that because, I mean, remember, your view of sex, your view of marriage reveals your understanding of the gospel. So this could be evidence that you really don't understand the gospel. This could be evidence that you don't understand why you so desperately need Jesus. Sex helps us understand the gospel. Bad sex, uh, good sex helps us understand the gospel. God offers us so much more than we can ever find in these temporary things that are right in front of us here on earth. In the same way marriage, his design for marriage is to show us that in that one wife, one husband, married covenant relationship, there's so much more to be had there. Good sex versus this bad sex that's right in front of you and the temptations that come every day. So it's destructive, it's addicting, and lastly, it's evidence of what could be a much deeper problem. And so my question with with you is this, is there a spiritual problem in your life? Could it be that you don't really know Jesus, you don't have Jesus? Here's the last thing I'm going to say as we've gone a little long. I I know as I'm saying this, I know, I know as I'm saying this, some of you are sitting there thinking, okay, so he showed us, hopefully I've done a good job tonight of showing you what good sex looks like and also what bad sex looks like. And some of you are thinking, I have had bad sex. And again, defining sex, not necessarily just sexual intercourse. But I've engaged in bad sexual things, things that just aren't good. So what about you? I know some of you are thinking that. What if you've had bad sex? What if you have been the instigator of bad sex? As I know for a fact, many of you have been, guys and girls. What if you've been the victim of bad sex? I mean, some of you, you didn't even have a choice. Is it possible to recover from bad sex? And if it is possible, How? That's where we're going to go next week. So the conversation isn't over. And I want you to know there is a lot of hope. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Overflow podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.